Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We will continue on with our walk with Jesus through the gospel according to Mark. Thank you, Jim. You probably need it. I may. Jesus moved with great intentionality in his ministry. Something I've learned over the years of studying through, especially the gospel accounts, but the entire scriptures truly, is that there's nothing random or by chance. That even the situations that Jesus faces, the healings that he undertakes, the teaching he does in certain locations, it is all on purpose. Jesus moved with great intentionality throughout his ministry. Never random. It's never caught by surprise. We never see the Lord trying to figure out what to do. He's never reactionary. He's always a step ahead in the game. In Mark chapter 8, we see this. We'll see it continue as we have seen it so far. We come to, however, a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 8. Now, this is going to be the midpoint of the gospel according to Mark. But that's not why it's pivotal. And here in this great chapter, we will hear the confession of Peter that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's not why it's pivotal. I think you'll see as we get into it why we get to this point. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. But it is an absolute key. It is a shift that begins to take place in the ministry, in the teaching of Jesus. But before we get to that pivotal point, we need to recognize that Jesus did some very unique miracles. And we talked a little bit about this on Sunday. He didn't just go out and, and kind of massively heal people. All deaf people to the left. You know, all blind people to the right, if you can find your way. And all lame people, just lay where you are. You know, boom, boom, boom. It, every single miracle was intentional. Every single miracle was unique. Not only to the person Jesus was healing, but also to the teaching Jesus was doing. And perhaps this is something you haven't thought of. I really hadn't. That his miracles were for teaching as much as his teaching was for teaching. And I love how the Spirit inspires Mark to put these couple of chapters together. Because at the end of Mark 7, we see Jesus curiously heal a deaf man. We talked about it on Sunday. An interesting healing. Fingers and ears, spit on on tongue, eye to eye. Calling out, sighing that deep sigh, and calling out Ephatha in the, in the Syrophoenician. Calling out to heaven in that prayer. We see him heal this deaf man, who also suffered from, you may remember, Mogalalos. Difficult speech. He had trouble talking, probably because he couldn't hear, although when he is healed, the Greek indicates that his tongue was loosened, that his bound tongue was loosened. So perhaps two problems going on there. But that's how the 7th chapter of Mark ends. With this healing of this deaf man who had trouble speaking. Mark chapter 8 opens up, as we'll see in a moment, with Jesus feeding a crowd of 4,000. Uniquely. And Mark chapter 8 continues on and we'll see Jesus peculiarly giving sight to a blind man. The deaf hear and speak. The multitude is well fed. The blind man gains his sight in a special way. And all of that leads up to the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Which again is not the pivotal point, but it's close. 
Do you get what I'm saying? Do you hear the picture? See the picture? This is not a pastor's presentation tonight. This is the holy organization of God's perfect Word. Because before anyone can confess Jesus Christ as Lord with their tongue, their ears have to be unplugged to hear. Before you can speak the Gospel to someone else, your heart has to have some feeding of the Word. Before you can stand up for Jesus in this world, your eyes have to be opened to see. Open ears, fed hearts, and clear eyes. And I believe the Spirit instructed Mark to order these stories, not just chronologically, but intentionally, to explain exactly what Jesus is doing here. But listen, on the way to open ears, clear eyes, and full bellies of the Word, there is a warning given, a very strong warning, that we need to understand. All of that is intro, background, to what we're going to see tonight. Let's begin verse 1 of Mark chapter 8. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with Me now three days, and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And His disciples answered Him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now Jesus looks around and verse 2 tells us he felt compassion. He looks at the sea of humanity, this multitude of people, this great crowd, and his instinct, his immediate sense is compassion. Is that yours? We were just in the mall the other day. And i got to confess to you, when I see the masses, compassion is not my first instinct. (laughs) But this is Jesus, and He looks out and He sees with compassion. The Greek word there is splachnizomai. It's from the word splachnon, which means bowels. It's a great word. And the Greeks got it. They understood. It's a far more accurate description than saying, I feel compassion in my heart. Well, if you do, you probably ought to see a doctor. Because you see, we don't get butterflies in our hearts. That would be arrhythmia. We don't get emotional pain in our hearts, that's angina. And we don't get sick in our hearts, that would be coronary artery disease. No, we feel it all in our gut. And so the Greeks used that word splachnon to say, that's where compassion is felt. You feel it, literally you have a physical reaction. You know, a young man falling in love, feels like he's going to throw up. (laughs) Splachnon. Someone who's hurting and you're upset for them. Slachna. It's compassion. It's a gut level emotion that honestly requires intestinal fortitude. And I'm not just being punny here. Sunday we talked about the sigh of intercession. As Jesus was healing the deaf man, he looked up to heaven and he sighs that sigh of intercession. He literally groans that word, Ephatha. One of two times that Jesus sighs in the New Testament. But that sigh of intercession, remember this, it involves both exertion and it involves compassion. To intercede for someone in prayer, you need to quite literally feel their pain. And sometimes we work too hard at dismissing the pain of the loss or the pain of the crowds in the mall. 
You know, honestly, if I stand in a shopping mall and I look at all the people and I start to try to think about or consider the amount of pain that truly is behind all of those credit cards and wallets and dollar bills, I don't know that I could handle it. I think I might be overwhelmed. But Jesus saw and felt compassion. While the people's stomachs are growling from hunger, Jesus' belly was growling with compassion. He had the same feeling for the Jews back at the Sea of Galilee. We saw a similar story to this back in Mark chapter 6, where 5,000 men were fed. That doesn't even mention women and children. So 10,000, 15,000 people fed there by the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus had the same exact feeling, that that splachnon, that gut-level compassion. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd, and He felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now note that. That's a little bit different. The compassion Jesus felt in that moment was a compassion to teach. It was a spiritual compassion. Because he was recognizing literally their spiritual condition. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so his compassion for the people, the Jewish people there by the Sea of Galilee, was to teach to feed them spiritually. Here it's slightly different because his compassion is literally a physical one. I feel compassion because they've remained with me, verse 2, three days, and they have nothing to eat. There's a physical problem here. This was not spiritual. It's physical. The people are hungry. And Jesus felt for them. And I point that out because Jesus is not just concerned in your life that you get fed the Word. He is also concerned in your life that you get fed. Period. And I think it's probably wise sometimes for us to back off just a tad from spiritualizing everything and recognize God has physical, tangible concern for your life. You think you're worried about paying the bills? He knows. He feels it. You think you're wondering where that next meal may come from or how are you going to fill up the gas tank? Or how is this economy going to survive? He's aware of all of that. Yes, He wants to feed us the Word, but He also wants to feed He feels both spiritual and physical splachnon compassion. Which is why Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus said, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? These basic needs. Don't worry about them. And He says in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. One of the key verses in Scripture, especially in in a state of the world like we're in where people are worrying about an awful lot of things, just seek the kingdom and His righteousness and let Him deal with the physical feeding. It's what He is concerned about as well as your spiritual life. So it's no surprise, since Jesus sees the need and He feeds the need, it's no surprise He would desire to feed these people. The surprise in this opening story of chapter 8 is the question of the disciples. Look at verse 4 again. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? I read that and I thought, I wonder which of the apostles were absent from class on the day Jesus fed 5,000. What did they miss? How could they now just two chapters later ask the same thing again? I understand the first time they had never seen Jesus perform a miracle like that. And don't underestimate the power of the feeding of the 5,000, a few loaves and some fish. It's the power of creation that Jesus showed there. 
Not just the power of multiplication, but the power of creation in motion before them. An amazing miracle when he fed the 5,000. But now he's with 4,000 people and the apostles ask, how can we... There's no way to... All these people... Well, the scholar pontificates it must be the same story repeated or reiterated for effect. (laughs) There are many commentators out there who say that very thing. The feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, it's just one feeding. It's just repeating it. Same story. Well, read on and let's see. Verse 5. And Jesus was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. (laughs) And he directed the people to sit down on the ground And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Quick comparison between the two stories. The feeding of the 5,000, Mark chapter 6. The feeding of the 4,000, Mark chapter 8. Consider the differences between the two. And you can look back at this later. But in Mark chapter 6, 5,000 men were fed, not including women and children. In Mark chapter 8, 4,000 were fed, perhaps including women and children. We don't know. So there's a different number to start with. You know, for, for the simple-minded folk like myself, that makes it real easy to say, okay, 5,000, 4,000, different story. But there's more. In the first story, five loaves and two small fish. In the second story, seven loaves and a few small fish. In the first story, Jesus directs the people to sit on the grass. Some think that's because it may have been late spring. In the second story, he has the people sit on the ground. And some believe, well, perhaps that's because now it's gone on into summer. In the first story, Jesus is clearly at Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. In the second story of Mark chapter 8, he's at Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In the first story, the people wanted to make him king when they saw the miracle. In the second story, there is no request for Jesus to be made king. No one even asks. Note this, in the first story, they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. In the second story, they picked up seven large baskets of leftovers. That's significant. The first word for baskets in Mark chapter 6 is kofinos, which is traveling baskets. It'd be like a small wicker, kind of a wicker bag or, or purse. Not real big, but big enough to carry, you know, perhaps a picnic for your family or a few odds and ends for the day. A traveling basket, kofinos. In the second story here in Mark chapter 8, the word is sturis. Sturis means a grain basket or hamper. Seven large baskets. That's why the English translation says large in chapter 8 and doesn't say large in chapter 6. Two different kinds of baskets. Keep that in mind. In the first story, we're told the disciples got into a boat And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, Mark chapter 6. In this story, he gets into the boat with the disciples. Very clearly, just doing a simple comparison, these are two completely different dinner parties that Jesus Jesus is catering. Two different stories, 
And he clearly will state this himself in just a few minutes, a few verses further down. So it brings us back to the question were the apostles really so thick as to miss the creative power of the feeding of the 5,000? That they would turn around two chapters later and say, where in a place like this are we going to find food to feed all these people? I don't think that it's a lack of faith so much on the part of the apostles. I think perhaps it's a lack of compassion. Jesus saw the masses there in Decapolis and had compassion. The apostles saw the people there in Decapolis and lacked compassion. Sometimes a shortage of compassion causes deafness and blindness and the inability to see the need or hear the need that someone has. Verse 4 again says, Where will anyone be able to find bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Jesus, my paraphrase, we're out in the pagan sticks here. We're out in Decapolis. Rome away from Rome. Remember we talked about? We're here in the home turf of the Decapricorns. People who live in the Decapolis... This is not like by the Sea of Galilee where our brothers and sisters and our Jewish friends were all there. And of course we should feed them. And we were amazed by that miracle. But now we're in Decapolis. These are not our people. We're in a desolate place. How are we going to come up with food here? It's one thing to feed 5,000 Jews in Bethsaida. Another thing to feed people in the Decapolis. You picking up the small pieces of what Jesus is putting down here? Twelve baskets full were collected among the Jewish people. Seven large baskets are collected among the Gentiles. Do you get it? If you don't, hang on. We'll come back to that. The apostles didn't understand what was going on at all. Neither did the Pharisees. Look at verse 11. Immediately he entered, this verse 10, let's back it up. Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. That's probably near Tiberias on the west side of the Galilee. Verse 11, the disciples came out, or the Pharisees, sorry, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply, the second sigh of Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. The second sigh of the Savior. A sigh, I said Sunday, a sigh of exasperation. I think maybe we could take it a step further. He wasn't just exasperated with the, with the Pharisees. He's disappointed. A sigh of disappointment. Because these are the leaders of the Jewish faith. These are the ones who knew the Word, who had been teaching Torah law for 400 years. Oh, perhaps not those men. They would have been pretty old at the time. But but for 400 years, the law had been taught and, and leaders had risen up in Israel to keep the law going and to keep people into the Word and to teach the Word. And, and teaching was a big deal. Although the teaching had gotten away from Torah and really had gotten into the writings and teachings of the rabbis, But these were the guys who should have seen every single sign. And as a matter of fact, note, they asked for a sign from heaven. 
And Jesus sighed deeply. Why? Because they had been given a sign from heaven. They had already been given one. Absolutely, completely, clearly, one that they should not have missed. Back in the book of Numbers, in Torah, Numbers 24-17, we have two nefarious characters, one by the name of Balaam, who's a, a seer, a prophet, but not a very godly man. And then we have King Balat, who is, if you'll pardon me, the fat king of Moab. And he was huge. This guy was a massive dude. He obviously had one too many extra large sodas. If he had only cut down on those... <laughs> And so King Balak of Moab calls on Balaam and he says, Listen, I want you to curse this people. Three times Balaam goes up to a top of a high mountain and tries to curse Israel. Three times when he opens his mouth to curse, blessing comes out. It's marvelous. In one of those times, Numbers 24, 17, hear the words of Balaam. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. A star? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. A star that will come forth from Jacob. Oh, I can't wait to share something with you. I I have to. We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And after hearing the king, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2, the Magi went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east now went on before them. They're now going south from Jerusalem down to the little town of Bethlehem. And they saw the star seemingly stopped right above the little town of Bethlehem over the place where the child was. There's your sign. Here's your sign. We want a sign from heaven. Here's your sign. Now, we need to understand something. This sign was loud and clear. Loud and clear. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare your handiwork. And so they did. And sometimes I think we can get a little stuck. We can look back across 2,000 years of distance and a lot of people think Jesus' first coming was just too mysterious and that's why all the people missed it. Not so. Not so, my friends. There was a sign from heaven that was so clear, so unmistakable, that all Jerusalem knew about it. Everybody in Jerusalem... How do you know that? Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The Magi came into town. We've seen his star. And I can guarantee you others had seen his star too. It wasn't just the wise men who noticed this star in the sky. Why? Because it was huge. Because it was a star unlike any star that entire generation, if not history, had ever seen. And in Jerusalem in that day, we didn't have light pollution, you know, to to soften the stars. Right now, you go outside, you can see some stars. It might be a starry night. Nothing like it used to be. If we could shut down all the lights on the entire West Coast, maybe then we could really see the stars. There wasn't pollution in those days like now. That also makes it vague, more difficult to see. Absolutely starry blue skies and... On the hot summer nights, the people would lay out on top of their roofs. 
That's where they would sleep. What do you do as you're laying out on the roof? You look up at the stars. For God to put a star in the heavens, to declare even through this prophet back in the book of Numbers, right in Torah law, which the people would have known very well, to put a star in the heavens, and then to have these magi from the east show up in Jerusalem. And they're claiming they've seen his star. His star? Absolutely clear, an unmistakable sign. And most had probably seen the star. And if they hadn't seen the star, they probably heard about it at the workroom or the copy room at work the next day. Did you see the star last night? It was huge. It was really big. And here come the Magi. Everybody in Jerusalem knew about this amazingly bright star. Bottom line, what I'm saying is this. It is never for lack of signs that people don't believe. The signs are there. The proof is there. The evidence is apparent. But it's hard to see hard evidence without welcoming it by faith. If there is no faith, you're not going to see the evidence. A lack of faith is like pollution and smog. makes it hard to see the star. But it was there. It was there. So they asked for a sign, and I find it interesting, from heaven. Well, the sign in heaven had been given very clearly. So Jesus sighed. Why, even with these signs in the heavens, did they miss Jesus? Because, as Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 12, while seeing, while seeing, they may see and not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. You notice what he says there? They did see. They did hear. They just didn't perceive. They just didn't understand. The evidence was laid out before them. They just chose not to believe it. But go back to the apostles, because what's happening here is we have a group of men who are in training And Jesus is intentionally training them. At this point, they've seen Jesus heal the deaf man who was also tongue-tied. They've also now watched Jesus feed 4,000 people. Verse 13. Leaving them, He again embarked and went away to the other side. And they have forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And this is probably more like pita bread than anything else. So we're not talking about a big loaf of bread, even that. It's a small loaf. And he was giving orders to them, verse 15, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven, gang, you know is a very Jewish picture of sin. Leaven portrays sin in the Bible. Leaven is never portrayed as a good thing. Even in the parable, Matthew 13, verse 33, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And what he's talking about there and in the context of Matthew 13 and and the parable is that sin gets in and even infiltrates the church. I know that's shocking. But sin gets in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are unleavened. For Paul says, Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, the old life, the old sin, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus says to the apostles there in verse 15, Watch out! Orao in the Greek. It is in the command form. In fact, it is in the active imperative, which means keep watching out. Stay vigilant. Don't stop being cautious. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so we've established that leaven is sin. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and what is the leaven of Herod? Now before I answer that, one other question. What Herod is he talking about? Now the immediate context would tell us perhaps Herod Antipas, who is actually the son of Herod the Great, one of of several of Herod the Great's sons. And he was problematic and kind of a doofus. But I wonder, I wonder if there wasn't also reference here to Herod the Great. He was the one who, like the Pharisees, outright, outright rejected the sign in the heavens, the star of Bethlehem, and slaughtered all the newborns under the age of two in the whole vicinity when Jesus was born. Beware of that leaven. Beware of the leaven of Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Whichever Herod Jesus is talking about, what he's talking about here is the leaven of legality. Or you could say the leaven of power. The leaven of power. In the case of the Pharisees, it was religious power. In the case of Herod and the Herodians, it was political power. (laughs) So Jesus really wasn't into religion or politics. In fact, Jesus said, and I caution all of us today, be careful, watch out for religion and politics. The Christian right is an awfully strong political group in America. But that's not what we're to be about. We are to vote. We've talked about this recently. We should have our voice heard. We vote morally because we pray for this country for God to bless America. But religion and politics will mess you up. The Pharisees and the Herodians. And Jesus warns against both of them. Why is he so serious against both religion and politics? Because both reject grace. Both religion and politics reject grace. Religion is all about what you do to be saved. The rules, the regulations, the law, that's pharisaical thinking. And all these to-dos, there's your religion, and it's problematic. Because you can never do enough to be saved. Politics is about what you do behind the scenes to get more power. And both of these reject the grace of our God. Well, verse 16. So they're in the boat. Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? (laughs) They're just loafing, you know. (laughs) Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have, Jesus says, a hardened heart? Having Note this, key verse. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Wait a minute, note that. The healing of the deaf man had just happened. In just a moment, we're going to see the healing of a blind man. Have you eyes, but you do not see? Have you ears, but do you not 
here? Interesting placement. When I broke the five loaves, verse 19, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Understand what, Lord? Well, aside from the fact that Jesus just himself clarifies two separate feedings there, he's now going to draw out the apostles in a teaching that they did not see, they did not understand. They thought he was just feeding people. They had no idea these miracles were teaching. That they were in training, even as Jesus was healing, even as Jesus was feeling. Training was going on as he fed the 5,000, as he fed the 4,000. Feeding the 5,000. Twelve baskets left. How many tribes of Israel? So what's the point of the feeding of of the 5,000? Jesus was feeding. There's enough for Israel. There's enough for all Israel. Twelve baskets full. And we're told in that feeding of the 5,000, everyone ate till they were stuffed to the rafters. So in that miracle, we see there's enough for all of Israel. And now, in the feeding of the 4,000 in the Decapolis, Gentiles, seven large baskets left. What does that mean? Seven is the number of completion or perfection. Not necessarily, but perfection kind of, yeah, it's more the number of completion. Which means, seven large baskets left, there's enough for everybody. In the first feeding, all Israel, there's plenty of salvation to go around. In the second feeding, there is salvation for the entire world. There is enough left over for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived to be saved, if they'll believe in me. If they'll come to me in faith. These feedings were teachings. And he's getting the apostles to the place where they'll understand. They'll start to put together. But I love the fact that he doesn't even explain it like I just did in verse 21. All he says is, do you not yet understand? You know what he pulls there? He pulls what I like to pull on Spencer. And Spencer's not here tonight, but I love to pull this. I love to get to the end of a teaching and throw out a really tough question and say, I'll talk about it on Sunday. And I don't just do that to frustrate Spencer. Oh, I do. But the primary reason that I do that is my hope is people will walk out the door thinking about that. I can't wait till Sunday. I'm going to look it up myself. And then by the time you show up on Sunday, you already have the answer and you have now owned it. And Jesus would do this all the time in His teaching. Do you not yet understand? And they're probably still in the boat going, I don't get it. I don't get it. Leaven. Leaven is the only way to humanly reproduce bread, to cause bread to rise. But these loaves were reproduced by the grace and the compassion of Jesus. It wasn't leaven. It wasn't, and and the way they used to take bread, they would take a little leaven out of one loaf and they would put it into the next loaf and they would kind of just continue on and on like that to cause the bread to rise. And Jesus says, you don't need it. You don't need it. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who feeds not just now or tomorrow or the next week. Leaven's going to run out. I never do. John 6.33 
The bread of God, Jesus said, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Lord, always give us this bread. And He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. How can somebody see Jesus? Have you ever said, if I was there, if I was on the ground in Israel when Jesus walked, then I could believe? I've heard people say that. Perhaps you have as well. The truth is, you can see Jesus and yet not believe. You can be seeing and not perceiving, hearing and not understanding. And the problem comes back to the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That the power is in me, the self-made man or the self-righteous man who thinks truly he really doesn't need Jesus. That is the leaven of legality. And it spreads all throughout the dough and it replaces faith and compassion with human ability. If you don't have leaven, you can't make the bread rise. We don't need leaven. We have Jesus. He rose. (laughs) And His is the power to save. But why the stern warning to the apostles? Why does Jesus say, as they're going across the sea again, He turns to them and says, watch out, beware. Very stern warnings to them. Why? This is just a guess on my part, but I think that at this point, even though they were following Jesus, a little leaven of the Pharisees was in among the apostles. They were not thinking in righteous terms. They're thinking the leaven of human strength and achievement and righteousness. And when you think with that kind of leaven, you go spiritually deaf. Your eyes become blinded. So Jesus leads them through one more lesson before we get to the pivotal moment. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes, again with the spit, and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Another tailor-made miracle of Jesus. The personal touch of the Savior. But note this. This is an interesting one because it's a miracle in process. He touches his eyes. He says, Do you see anything? Kinda. Why isn't he instantly healed? Is Jesus' power going out a little bit? Maybe he needs a refill. Why does he have to be touched again? Why is it progressive? Think about the healing. Jesus brought the blind man out of the village. He applied spit to the eyes. Now I like what Adam Clark says about this. Probably simply to wash out the gunk and the crustiness that, that caked his eyes in his blindness. Oftentimes with disease causing blindness, especially in the day... You get that. I mean, if you've gotten pink eye before, or if you have, or you've seen something with it, someone with that, it's, it's kind of gross. There's always that goo, you know. And it's entirely likely here that the spit in the eyes, he, he's, he's cleaning out the eyes. He's, he's getting the gunk out. Even before he does the direct healing, 
He does it two times, allowing the man's sight to slowly adjust instead of the shocking vision of seeing everything clearly. And then he sends the man directly home, which keeps the word down, but it also allows a little more time for his uh, optical sensations to be relearned by his brain. As is often the case when people go blind. In fact, with people who are born blind, if there, and there have been instances where people born blind are given, are given surgery and, and actually get their eyesight back. And it's very hard for them to live out their lives that way because their brain has never learned how to take in the information. So you and I see very specific things and see clearly, but someone who's been blind from birth suddenly has eyesight, their brain doesn't know what they're seeing. So they see flashes and colors and brightness and it's confusing. So Jesus heals this man slowly, progressively, sends him on his way. And when the miracle is completed, the man sees clearly. What is Jesus up to here? He's fine-tuning. He's adjusting. You ever go to the eye doctor? You know the little thing they put in your eye? This clear? How's that? How that? What does that one look like? That one. And I'm, I'm, I never know. I'm like, I'm hoping I, I pass the test. You know? Can, is, is this like a letter grade for this test? Can I fail this? They're adjusting to get the best glasses or contacts that they can, right? Jesus is adjusting this man's vision to perfect clarity. Well, yeah, but... But Jesus, He could have done it like that. We know He healed other people, blind people, like that. Why this one progressively? He's still teaching. He's still teaching. My friends, sometimes healing is a process. Sometimes healing takes time. Learning is a process too. Learning takes time as well. Remember what He said back in verse 18? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? While he's given this man restored eyesight, he's giving his apostles spiritual insight. He's growing their understanding. They're slowly adjusting to Jesus. He's fine-tuning the clarity of their spiritual eyesight so that they might see and understand and know who he is. That's what's happening with the apostles. That's what's happening with you and me. We don't always see clearly what God's doing. In fact, oftentimes we don't have a clue what's going on. And we're saying, Lord, if you just show me a sign. And somewhere off in the heavens we hear a sigh. He is in process with every one of us. We have a word for that, sanctification. And I love what uh, Solomon wrote about this, Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. It's not an instantaneous, sun's up! Boy, I hated that as a kid. You know, on those dark winter mornings, when it would be like a Saturday morning, I'd sleep in and my dad would come in and just flip on the light. Singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. (laughs) I'm like, there is nothing beautiful right now. At all. It's just shocking, you know. That's not how we learn. It's not how we grow. And Jesus is showing this progressively. He is increasing the light in the life of the apostles. Progressively increasing the brightness of the dawn for you and for me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. We're going to a place, we will get to the place where it all makes sense. Where we will see perfectly clearly. But on the way, there's a little gunk that needs to get cleared out of our eyes. There's some 
concretions that need to be drawn out. That's a real word, by the way. The best way, the best way to hear Jesus or to gain spiritual insight, gang, is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's what he invites the apostles to do next. He now has healed the blind man. He healed the deaf man. He fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000, made specific teaching and warning about this, and now brings them to a place where they have to really think about who is this Jesus? He leaves them 25 miles north. They head up into uh, the area called Caesarea Philippi, the huge rock edifice of Caesarea Philippi. It's just just to the base, close to Mount Hermon. And up there at Caesarea Philippi, you may remember the story, verse 27, Jesus went out, along with His disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Why not just tell them who He is? Why doesn't Jesus just say, I'm the Messiah, you need to believe in Me, done deal. That would be like flipping on the light and singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. (laughs) How can we believe that? And so as with the blind man, Jesus teaches progressively. He brings him to this place now and says, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. (laughs) And others say, Elijah. But others say, One of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Again, he's not telling them. He's asking them. What God has ever cared to ask his followers who they, what they think about him? But Jesus did. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are Mashiach. His eyes are a little wider. His hearing a little clearer. But Jesus, verse 30, warned them to tell no one about Him. It wasn't time yet to bring this truth to light. Not publicly, not outside the small circle of the apostles. Not yet. Something else had to happen first. And so He warns them, don't tell anyone. That word uh, charges them, warned them. It literally means charges them sharply. Epitomao. Charge them sharply. Don't you dare tell a single soul about what you have just said, Peter, about what has just been shown here. Why is Jesus so serious about this? Two reasons. The first one is timing. It wasn't yet His time. But the second reason is critical for the apostles not to go spreading this yet. And what is that? Misunderstanding. What do you mean, Rick? Even in Peter's grand confession of Jesus and as the Messiah, the religious political leaven was present. Even as he says, you are the Christ, there is in Peter's soul, man, in his mind, in his thinking, there is a sense of political and religious power. You are the Messiah. 400 years of tradition causes crustiness in the eyes. 400 years of built up presuppositions clog the ears. 
And the popular view of Messiah, even among Jesus' disciples, was that of a great religious ruler and a political powerhouse. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of religion. Beware of politics. That is not what this is about. And before the messianic nature of Jesus could truly come to light, the apostles needed to have their eyes cleared and their ears unclogged so that they could see Jesus for who He is rather than for who tradition said He should be. Are you with me? And Jesus knows all this. We know it because we're 2,000 years later and we can look back and see what He was up to. So how do you clear 400 years of crustiness out of someone's eyes? How do you unclog 400 years of waxy buildup in the ears so they can hear and see Him for who He is? How do you do that? You take Him to the cross. Verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And note this, verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. Suddenly Jesus hits a pivotal point in His ministry. And this is it. It's not Peter's confession. It's that now all of a sudden with the apostles, He is no longer speaking in parables at all. He is no longer speaking in mysterious terms. He's no longer just kind of dropping a spiritual thought on Him as He did before. Do you not yet understand verse 21? And leave it hanging there. Now He is speaking clearly and plainly and specifically, stating the matter plainly, the Son of Man is going to suffer. I am going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. Mark makes it clear that Jesus was making it clear. And this is not the pivotal moment, again, because of the confession. It is the pivotal moment because of the determination of the Christ. Look over in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Just a page or two over. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Normally, He walked with them. But now He has determination. He has steely-eyed vision. He is headed for Jerusalem. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to to Him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him. And three days later, He will rise again. Clearly, plainly, with determination, Jesus is telling the apostles from this point in His ministry forward exactly what is going to happen. He pulls no punches. And Peter, back in chapter 8, Peter is so shocked at this initial revelation that he just can't hold back. Peter took him aside, verse 32, and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. That right there is the harshest thing Jesus ever said to anybody. Where he literally named Satan. You know spiritually what was going on. 
There wasn't just a demon prompting Peter to rebuke Jesus. Satan himself was there. Trying to undermine everything Jesus was doing. Peter, you tell him no! You know, the emotions rise up in Peter. No, we can't lose Jesus now. No, we'll fight for you. No, we won't let this happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now, I think Jesus sees already the leadership of Peter. Among the apostles, he sees that Peter, though he kind of blurts things out from time to time, is a leader. And the rest of the guys kind of look to him. And Jesus sees that. This The other guys are just off a bit. So Jesus doesn't call Peter down right in front of them. Get behind me, Satan! Oh, he's No, they're off, just the two of them. And the Bible tells us Jesus looks and He sees the other apostles and He goes, Peter, your interests are all wrong. Get it right. Straighten out your mind. Straighten out your heart. Gang, we are not here to be concerned with the interests of man. Compassionate? Yes. Loving? Yes. Gracious? Caring? Calling, inviting to Jesus? Absolutely. But we are not here to be concerned about man's interests, but about God's interests. About the things that matter to Him. We are not here to appease humanity. We're not here to make people comfortable. We're here to teach the truth. We're here to speak the gospel. We are here to see lives saved. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Peter's confession is what I would call a blessed blurt. Matthew 16.17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now I point that out for this reason. Revelation does not necessarily equate to righteousness. And we need to be aware of that in this day and age of false teachers and false prophets. Revelation does not necessarily equate to righteousness. Just moments after Peter gives this divine divulgence, moments after Peter says, You are the Christ! He sinks to a new low. After confessing the Christ, he calls down the Christ. Why would he do that? The leaven of the Pharisees is in Peter's head. We can't let your power be usurped, Lord. Leaven of the Pharisees. we got to take over Rome, Lord. Bring the kingdom. Leaven of Herod. Now I think about that and I think, wow, if Pope Peter is fallible... I say in jest. If Peter's a fallible dude, how can I avoid the exact same leaven that was getting into his thinking? By the way, that was leaven that was still there at Jesus' ascension. You realize that? After the resurrection, but before they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the leaven was still there. How do you know that? Acts chapter 1, Peter and the apostles, they say, now are you going to restore the kingdom on earth? Apparently they were absent that day too. Now are you going to bring 
you're royal, you're going to overthrow Rome? That's not the deal. That's not what this is about. So how do we avoid the same leaven? And here I, I think is the key to the whole night. How do we avoid going the wrong direction with the power and the interests of man? Be it religion or politics or even in our own lives, our own self-righteousness, our own pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. How do we avoid that? Listen. Jesus not only spoke plainly about the way of the cross for Himself, He gave the exact same directions to everyone who would follow Him. Verse 34. He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. By the way, Herod wanted to save his life. Herod the Great desperately wanted to protect his life, which is why he built Masada. It's why he built all of the grand structures that are still there, you can see, dug up all around Israel. These strongholds of protection. Places that he could flee to protect himself. And it didn't work. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, here's the key. Don't miss this. The key to avoiding the leaven of human thinking. The leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, that that power, that self-righteousness, that pride that is so present in man. The key to avoiding that leaven, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I'm going to the cross. You guys need to be aware of that, he says to the apostles. Why is it so important, Jesus? Because you're going to the cross too. If you follow me. You follow me? Not me. If you follow Jesus, you are going to the cross. That is the only direction that a life patterned after Jesus will go. Self-denial, taking up your cross, following Him. Did Peter catch on? Did he ever really get it? Well, following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John on the beach there at the Galilee. And he said to Peter in John 21, 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And John gives us insight. He says, now this Jesus says, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Where are you going, Lord? The path with Jesus leads straight to the cross. What's wonderful is right on the other side of the cross is the resurrection. But that's the path that Jesus has called everyone to take if you follow Him. The path to denying yourself, taking up the cross, following Him. But even after Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, 
even after He began to preach with power, to perform great miracles, He still blew it. And we know this from the writings of Paul. He still had the occasional crustiness get back in his eyes. His ears would clog from time to time. Galatians 2.11 Paul says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. What's that? The leaven of the Pharisees. He feared the party of the circumcision. Religious leaven. Even at that point. But I can tell you that that Peter's hearing and his vision eventually became quite clear. In fact, in his letter, 1 Peter 2.21, he wrote, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. Where did His steps go? To the cross. Where do my steps go? To the cross. And history indicates that Peter did, in fact, go to the cross. In Rome, Peter was crucified. That's how this follower of Jesus was martyred. Some say upside down because he didn't want to be crucified by his Lord. I don't know. That's that's church tradition. Possible. It doesn't rather matter if it was upside down or right side up. He went to the cross just as Jesus said he would and just as Jesus called him to. Ears unplugged. Hearts well fed. Eyes that see clearly. And how do we get this? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. We all have a cross to bear. And I want to talk about this more on Sunday. But we all have a cross to bear. What is yours? Think about tonight. What is my cross to bear? Let me give you a little heads up. I can tell you right now, your cross to bear is not your financial hardship. Your cross to bear is not a bad marriage. Your cross to bear is not a physical disease or malady of some kind. It is not a health issue. It's not an unruly family member. It is not stress at work. That is not your cross to bear. Your cross to bear is not even, James, a difficult diet. We use this phrase so loosely. Oh, it's just my cross to bear. No, it's not. Well, what is my cross to bear? We'll talk about it on Sunday. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise Your name. Jesus, we pray that You would open our ears to hear clearly what Your Spirit is speaking to the church. We ask, Lord Jesus, You would take away the film and the crust from our eyes that we would have spiritual insight able to discern spiritual things. We pray that You will continue, Lord, even as we open our mouths wide to feed us with the Word of Truth. And we ask that You'll teach us what it means truly to pick up our cross and follow after You. Jesus, thank You for still being our Rabbi, our Teacher. Walk with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen.